just start by reading the passage we're going to be looking at. And we'll go through chapter 2 and verse 8. And we'll see how much of this we get to cover. So, Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at this first passage, really I'm looking at the verses 27 to 30, we're looking at kind of the introduction as we launch into uh, this idea of living worthy of the gospel. Because he still, he starts off with the command right there at the beginning of verse 27 saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there's this command. Paul, in writing to the church, it's a church he planted. It's a church he deeply loved. He commands them to live, to behave, to conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a church. They understood the gospel. They had received the gospel. They loved the gospel. They partnered with Paul strategically to spread the gospel to other cities. The gospel was important to them. The gospel was of great value because it had radically changed their lives. So Paul says, now live worthy of it. So if the gospel is that important and it's so vital in this passage, I think we need to define it. And make sure that we understand what he's talking about. Because you can go back in this passage, you can go back to earlier in chapter 1 here, and we just don't have time to dig into it. He talks about the gospel over and over again. And he talks about what he's done for the gospel and how they partner for the gospel. And, and his dilemma of, of what would be better, to, to, to live here on earth and share the gospel and spread the gospel, or to die and go and be with Christ, which is the ultimate gospel. And so the gospel is important. And so it's important that we understand what in the world he is talking about. And so we're going to look at the gospel. What is this gospel of Christ that they so valued, that they were commanded to live worthy of? So let's not just assume that when we, someone says gospel, we all know exactly what we're talking about. I'm going to take this, and this is from a book by Greg Gilbert called What is the Gospel? And in, in the book, it studies through the New Testament and Jesus and the Paul's letters of kind of breaking down the gospel in a way that's easy to understand and easy to communicate. 
Okay? And it's four words. Going, Todd, seems like a pretty complex thing to put in four words. It is, but I can remember four words. And I bet you guys can too. So the gospel in four words. First of all, God. God, because God is perfect and God is holy, holy, holy. Say that with me. God is holy, holy, holy. We just learned this. Chris, in his teaching on on, um, drawing near to God, talked about this in, in depth a few weeks ago. And God is holy. Because God is so perfect and because of His holiness and His perfect righteousness, only perfection can be in relationship with Him. Only perfect holiness and perfect righteousness can be in relationship with Him. Secondly, we have man. Mankind, you, me, everyone. You can even put your name in there instead if you want. But it's man. But mankind is depraved, lost, and in rebellion with God. There is nothing good in us. We are evil. We are sons of the devil, Ephesians 2, 2 tells us. All right, we are not good. We are, but because we are evil, we cannot be in relationship with God. We are dead in our sin and without hope. This paints a bleak picture, and that's why we have to have God, who is holy, holy, holy. We have to understand that then we have man who is not good. That man is evil, and we see that evil around us all the time. Right? We saw it down in Florida very recently. Man is evil. We are evil. But because God is gracious and loving, He chose to make a way for His rebellious creation to be redeemed. And that way is Jesus. That's the third blank. You've got God, man, Jesus. Without Jesus, it ends with just abandonment of all hope because we cannot be in relationship with God. But because of Jesus, there is hope and there is a means of being restored and redeemed back to God. Jesus provides the way. Turn to Philippians 2. We just read it, but look at chapter, verse 6 here. Because just in case you're wondering, is Paul talking about Jesus? Hey, he's going to go through this whole passage, and then he's going to bring it all back to, look what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2. Who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the means for us to go from depraved, evil, human mankind to being brought into relationship with a holy, holy, holy God. But it doesn't stop at just... God, man, and Jesus. Because if it was only had to be God, man, and Jesus, then we'd have universalism and everyone could be saved. But it takes the last one, and that is response. And this is our responsibility. God's taking care of His part. He's holy, holy, holy. He recognized His creation rebelled and they're sinful, and so He provided Jesus. But now our responsibility is to respond. So how do you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? The Philippians, they received the gospel and their lives were transformed. Paul, when he you write, you read this letter and this is one of those letters that, yeah, he's correcting some things in it. 
They were struggling with unity and they had some infighting and stuff. But he he loved them. This was a church that was growing and excited about the gospel. Their lives had been transformed by the gospel. So, again, by way of introduction, we continue to see that we've got the command of living worthy and we have the gospel that we're living worthy of. But then he expands on it and gives us what the requirement is for living worthy. What does this mean? What does Paul mean by manner of life? What does this look like? Well, here's the requirement. It says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, it's standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. But look what it's for. For the faith of the gospel. See, now unity becomes the new theme of this next section of the letter. And that's what verse 27 is introducing. Hey, live worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. And how do you do that? By unity. This unity is a battle in war. Okay? This is not the unity of, hey, let's all come together and hold hands and feel good and sing kumbaya around the campfire. That's wonderful. We like feel-good moments and they do bring us together. But this is unity of the foxhole. In the midst of battle, when opposition's coming and things aren't going so well, that's when you truly are bonded together. And this is the kind of unity he's saying, this is what you guys have got to have. This isn't just feel-good unity. This is living in a battle kind of unity. The gospel is central to and the driving purpose. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. For what? For what reason? Why are we doing this? For the gospel. For the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. Why? For the gospel. You've got to be unified. Unity is required to weather these storms. Look what he says. Look at verse, starting in verse 28. It says, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, then verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you. That sounds like, hey, you've been privileged now. And look what he says. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Thanks. Then verse 30. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Hey, you know that same conflict you saw me go through? Now, does anybody remember? You just have to remember. Bruce preached on this a while back. Does anybody remember from the book of Acts what happened to Paul when he was in Philippi? When he was working to plant this church? Paul and Silas. Remember the story? Where'd they end up? Not where you want to end up. It's where Dane comes along and throws you in the pokey. That's where they ended up. They're in prison. All right. So they saw the, he says, hey, you know, that same conflict that you saw that conflict I had, same conflicts coming for you. And guess where he's writing this letter from? He's in Rome, not on vacation. He's in prison. So here he's, look what he's saying. Hey, first of all, not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's opponents. Then you're going to suffer for his sake. And then engage in the same conflict. 
The people that threw me in prison are going to want to throw you in prison. There's opposition out there. You're going to suffer for my sake. It is in this context that he's saying, you've got to be striving together. You've got to be unified. You've got to be the same mind. This has got to be what exemplifies the way you live. This is what is worthy of the gospel. We know the command is to live worthy of the gospel. We know this requires unity in the face of suffering and persecution. But this is scary. The idea, we don't get persecution and suffering here in suburban middle class America. We, we don't know. We, you know, it's, it's getting rough out there. I mean, it's different now. Even at work, it's different now than it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You know, it, it takes some more courage to talk about spiritual things. It does, but I've not been persecuted yet. I just get stranger looks than I used to kind of a thing. It could be coming. It's scary. We're not sure how to do this. We're not sure what this looks like. And the Philippians, they were struggling in this as well. And this is where Paul said, Paul's thinking, hey, I love you guys. Here's an area you you guys need to work on this. Let me help you out. So now Paul takes his plea to the next level. And he explains how we are to live worthy of the gospel. So living worthy of the gospel. The first thing we got to do is remember God's work. Paul now presses the idea of unity even further. And he pleads to them based on the work of God that they had already experienced. Asked these questions in verse one of chapter two, and he asked them almost, almost rhetorically. He knows these people well, and knows that they have experienced, and he knows what they've experienced. And based on this knowledge, he asked them to remember and to consider and to be motivated by what God has already done for them. So, as we look at these, consider these questions for yourself. So if, and he asks in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy. So think about these. First of all, is there any encouragement in Christ? Has God's work in your life strengthened and encouraged you? Have you been encouraged by other Christians around you as they serve you and show Christ to you? Consider that. Think about it. I hope in a church like ours where I think we love one another really well. And if you're part of a grow group, I, I'm confident you've experienced this kind of encouragement from Christ. But if you're, if you're a believer, man, I think you ask this, hey, has God's work in your life strengthened and encouraged you? Yeah. I can, yeah, I think we can say, yeah, God, I'm encouraged. It's made a difference in my life. Absolutely. It's almost rhetorical. It's like, of course it has. I'm a Christian. And he asked, if there's any comfort from love, comfort from love? We just had Valentine's Day. The whole reason the day exists is because people are comforted by being loved. 
What makes it? Nobody feels better at that point in the day than when they finally get that card from somebody or that piece of candy that says, "Hey, somebody cared enough to give me the card." You know, it wasn't the coolest whenever you're a kid and you had. Did you guys have Valentine's Day parties in elementary school? You know, and of course you had to give one to everybody. But every once in a while, you'd open up the one from somebody, and they wrote something special in it that they didn't write in everybody else's. Man, you felt good, and especially if it was a cute girl. And if it wasn't, then it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> There's comfort in being loved. To go home to your family that loves you, and you sit on the couch with them and relax, and they snuggle up to you a little bit, and, and, and you just share love. It's comforting. Guess what? Spiritually, is there comfort in love? In knowing that we have God's unconditional love in our life, that no matter what we do, because of the gospel, He now sees us as righteous. And and we cannot be removed from the love of God. It's comforting. Have you experienced Christ's comfort and love? Have you experienced the comforting love of God shared from other believers? From people around you here at LifeBridge that have come alongside you and shared Christ's love in your life? Their friendship, their acceptance, their love. Have you, have you experienced that? A nod of the head. A sh- have you guys? Yeah. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Any, some translations use fellowship in the Spirit. And this is literally participation with the Holy Spirit. This is not just the feel-good Spirit, which he actually uses later on uh, of a, you know, in the passage. But this is the Holy Spirit. Hey, is the Spirit at work in your life? Is the Holy Spirit done things for you? Has it convicted you of sin? Has it prompted you to obey? Has it motivated you to do the right things? Has the Holy Spirit helped you to grow spiritually and to be a better father, a better parent, a better husband, a better wife as it transforms your life into Christ-likeness? Have you participated with the work of the Holy Spirit? Have you worshipped in spirit and truth? With the Holy Spirit working as Spirit and Word come together to create life in your life. Have you participated? Have you had participation with the Spirit? Yeah, I see some that. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's alive. It's working. Yeah, we're Christians. We've got the Holy Spirit. And and then he ends, he says, Is there any affection and sympathy? Those are just, it's like a cup of hot cocoa words, right? Affection and sympathy. This is divine compassion and mercy received in salvation and then flowing out to others by the power of the Spirit. Have you experienced God's mercy in the gospel? Yeah. Yeah. God saved me. I got His mercy. He had sympathy on me. Have you experienced compassion and sympathy from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, when I was down, they, they, they wept with me. When I was up, they cheered with me. When I was in sin, they confronted me. Yeah, I've had their sympathy. Yeah, he asked these questions because he knows they're a growing, vibrant church and he knows these things are taking place in their lives. He says, hey, if this is going on, if there's encouragement in Christ, if there's comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if these exist, complete my joy. 
complete my joy. This is going on in your life. And guys, this is what you're going to need to walk worthy of the gospel. These are the things you're going to need to live in unity. These are the things you're going to need to be of the same mind. If you've got these, complete my joy. Paul has taken them back to memories of salvation and mutual growth to both motivate them and to help them understand the need for unity and humility in their relationships. Remember God's work. But he takes it, like I just said, you have these, verse 2, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Have the same mind. Have the same mind. Complete my joy. Here, This is interesting. Where's Paul at? Remember? Where's he at? Prison. Prison. Not on a Rome vacation, which would be awesome. No, he's there on the paid expense paid plan. Paul elevates the purpose and goal of gospel unity so high that he disregards. He doesn't even care about his own pain and suffering. In the midst of suffering... He says, my joy will be complete to know that you guys are unified in the gospel. He doesn't say, if you want to complete my joy, come get me. He doesn't say that. If you want to complete my joy, have the same mind. If you want to complete my joy, be united together. If you want to complete my, my joy, strive together for the gospel. You want to complete my joy, have the same mind. So, so, so what mind is this? Have the same mind. Okay, well, what mind is this? When you, we know what he said. Have the same mind. We're going to think alike, right? So what do we do with our brain? We think, hopefully, right? It's what we're thinking. It's how we process information. It's how we plan. It's how we focus. It's how, how we do these things. So he has, what is, he, it's, what is this mind? What mind is this? If we're thinking and meditating, we're considering Dreaming, dwelling on, focused on. It's what, what we're driven by. It's what we're motivated by. All this inner mind. Uh, so what is it? Remember, verse, chapter 1, verse 27, it's the mind of the gospel. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The goal of unity is to become gospel-oriented men and women. Not some vacuous togetherness unity, but gospel-focused unity. The gospel is the center and unifying purpose. The gospel must be the center of all worship and ministry. We can be unified over many things. We can be unified over the royals. In 2015, I experienced one of the greatest, I had, one of the greatest unifying experiences of all time with what 800,000 people downtown for the royals parade. It was amazing. We were all unified. People were loving one another. People that didn't know each other were nice to each other. When some people were a little rude, they were quickly forgiven. Because why? We were all focused on one thing, worshiping the royals. And it was a blast. 
But that's not the unity that Paul's talking about. He doesn't say, have the same mind and pick whatever it is that makes it easy for you to have the same mind over. No. It's about the gospel. We are not called to be united around just anything for any purpose. We are called to be united to achieve... We are not called to achieve positive changes for society or make the world a better place. Those might be byproducts of the gospel, by the way, but that's not our single unifying purpose. We are called to be united for the sake of the gospel. To live out the gospel in us and pursue the proclamation of the gospel outside of us. Look how fully encompassing the same mind is. He says, the same mind, gospel-centered in our thinking. Gospel-centered in our thinking. The way we think and process information. When stuff happens, when we see something, when we hear something, how are we going to think about it? How are we going to process that? What filter are we using? It needs to be the gospel filter. It's the same love. This is gospel motivations in our attitudes and our emotions. Gospel motivated in our attitudes. Have the same mind. The same love. Being in full accord. The idea of that being in full accord is having the same spirit. And this is not have the same Holy Spirit. This is that 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 feel that that it's we've you guys have felt it. You guys have experienced that. Maybe it's been on a sports team or it's been on a work team where man you're all working together for it and you feel it. You're all in one accord on the same page. And it and it's it's relationships. Hey, be the same core, the same spirit, gospel-oriented in our relationships with one another. And then again, he comes back to, and of one mind. Same purpose. Because the, the, the Christian Standard Bible actually translate this last phrase as intent on one purpose. I love that translation. So you actually read this as having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and intent on one purpose. That that purpose is the gospel. Note, gospel-oriented people will be others-oriented people. They move beyond themselves. Inherently, the gospel moves us beyond ourselves. And we're going to see why here in a second. But gospel-oriented means we're going to be others-oriented. So we we got to remember God's work, have the same mind, and now and now we move into the tough stuff. Okay, unify. This is this all sounds great. I love teamwork. It feels wonderful. This this is good, Todd. I, I like this. Now it gets difficult. Verse verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, verse 3 describes what having the same mind actually looks like. We don't get to define this. God does. It explains how we are to behave and adjust our attitudes as we relate to one another in light of the gospel. When the When we've experienced the gospel, this should be the end product. Selfish ambition and conceit 
has always been a part of the world system. Think how rare it is when, when someone that's had phenomenal success in sports or who's had phenomenal success in business, whatever, comes across as humble. Go, wow, that's surprising. There's a reason. Because the people that, that achieve, they're driven and they tend to be focused on their success. And they work really, really, really hard and put a lot of hours in to achieve their purposes and their success. And guess what? It works. It works. They have success. That's what works in the world. Having some conceit. Hey, I'm important. I've got to work on myself. Having some selfish ambition. Hey, whatever moves me forward, that's what I'm going to focus on. That's the world's plan. That's the way it works. Selfish ambition and conceit has always been part of the world system. It's the opposite of being gospel-focused. And I'm not saying you can't have success and be gospel-focused at the same time. Absolutely. People do it. Christians do that. The Eagles were actually a great example of guys that had gospel-focused. When their head coach gets up, holds a trophy, and the first thing he does is praise his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, have you seen the video of the Eagles players baptizing one of their teammates? This is a, I don't know how many guys on that team are Christians, but it's a, it's a chunk of them. And it showed in their attitudes and actions. That's a side point. But hey, it, you can have success. God blesses. The key is, what's your focus? What the world exalts is in opposition to what pleases God and is worthy of the gospel. Look, we're naturally selfish people. We continually want to feel good. We want to look good. We want to do good for our own desires and fulfillment. That's our norm. That's kind of base Todd right there. All right? Where I naturally want to be at. But a heart transformed by the gospel will set aside those selfish desires and set aside the selfish ambitions and replace them with gospel-oriented desires and ambitions. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Wait, wait, Todd, you mean I, I can't have any ambition at work to excel? No. Because the Bible tells us to work as unto the Lord. We should be doing the absolute best, working our hardest, but not for ourselves, for the Lord. That goes back to Chris taught a whole series on being a Christian in the workplace. No, this isn't knocked down our ambition. In fact, it raises it up because God is far more worthy of having ambition for than we are ourselves. He's saying, hey, no more selfish ambition. No more conceit. All right? Your ambition and your purpose and your drive. Every day when you get up, it's not about this, whatever that may be that drives you. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. Whatever we do. I go and I do stuff at an insurance company. And it's not exciting. But you know what? There's a mission field there. And it, and it, and it helps fund missions. And it helps fund LifeBridge. And, and, it, and it enables me to do things for the gospel. And so I can go and I can work 
for God and put and work hard and live out the gospel. And it's not selfish ambition. Does that mean I have to uh, struggle in this area? Sure. Because like I said, I wake up every morning thinking mostly about myself. I'm probably not the only one. Set yourself aside. Set yourself aside. So remember God's word. Have the same mind. Set yourself aside. Make sure we get those blanks correct. You can probably figure out what some, most of these are. They're not, they're not alliterated or anything. So, set yourself aside. Now, lift others up. Lift others up. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in contrast, in humility, instead of conceit, it's humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This may be one of the most controversial, difficult, in opposition phrases in Scripture for, for us American Christians. Man, this one's rough. This one's rough. Guys, it, count others more significant than yourselves. And there is no way to argue around what that really means. Okay? There's no way to rationalize what that... No, you're, you're just kind of... You're supposed to treat people as good as you would treat yourself. That's not what it says. Count others more significant than yourself. I was, I was talking to Kim about as I was preparing this, and I go, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I, may, I might need a, maybe I want to buy a new commentary. You know, do a lesson in Philippians. It's just an excuse to buy a commentary. But, <laughs> but I go, but the, what's cool about Philippians, it, it's not hard. It's an easy book. It's one of those books that we can all read and understand what it's but we, But what we try to do is we read passages like this, and we don't want to understand it. We want to think, well, he, Paul couldn't have meant that. He couldn't possibly have really meant to look at other people and think of them as more significant than myself. That can't possibly, buddy. That is what he meant. Well, what does that look like, Todd? It means that when I see somebody else, when I show up at church, because this is written to a body of believers, a church. So when we come to LifeBridge and I look at anyone other than me, I should look at them and say, they are more important than I am. And I need to treat them that they are more important than me. No, that's not really what you meant, is it? No, it's what Paul said. And the goal here is that we all come together and we come together at LifeBridge on Sunday morning. And then we go to our grow groups on Sunday evening. And then we get into our ministry teams on Wednesday night or during the week. And when we show up, everybody is looking at everybody else saying, they're more important and I'm going to treat them like they're more important than me. Because guess what that means? It means when I go to grow group and I'm sitting there with 15 people, Instead of just me looking at Todd going, Todd, you're more important than everybody else here. Instead, I've got 14 other people that should be looking at me saying, Todd, you're more important than me. But it goes all the way around. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at everybody else going, you're more important. No, you're more important. You're more important. And everybody's treating each other like they're the most important person there. And all of a sudden, oh, that feel pretty good. Yeah, that would work really well. If we'll do it. 
It works. But what's the problem? Know what we're afraid of? What are we afraid of in that scenario? We're afraid that we're the only one that's going to do it. Because that would kind of stink. What, what if I show up and I treat everybody else like they're more important than me? And they treat themselves like they're more important than me. Then you get to live the life that Jesus lived. Where he came and he said, I came to serve. I get, go to the book of Matthew and the book of John and the story of the upper room. And the apostles, in fact, Jesus just has a conversation with the disciples because they go to him and say, hey, Who's going to be most popular in the kingdom? Who's going to be most important? You want to know why? Because James and John's parents went to Jesus and said, hey, they're the best. And the other disciples are kind of ticked about it. So they go, Jesus, who's going to be most important? And he goes, whoever serves is the greatest. And he tells them that. A few days later, this Passover, they go to the upper room, and they're all laying around lounging with their feet in each other's faces, and their feet are dirty. You know why? Because nobody washed anybody else's feet. Because they're all still thinking about the fact of who's most important. Well, I think I might be pretty important. Somebody should come and wash my feet. Because that was how it worked. Whoever was on the low end would wash others' feet. Because they were filthy and nasty and you're going to recline and have feet in everybody's faces. So everybody's laying around, all the apostles with dirty feet, thinking about how important they are. And Jesus gets up takes his robe off, ties it around his waist, grabs a towel, grabs a bowl of water, and he starts washing their feet. I came to serve because I'm going to look at each of you and consider you more important than me. And I'm going to wash your feet. We're his body, and it's what we should live out. Um, lowliness and humility that is disdained by the world is the highest virtue in Christianity. This is a humility that comes from a deep understanding of our own inadequacies before God. That we are helpless to save ourselves or to better ourselves, but are wholly dependent on God alone. This is what the gospel looks like when internalized. We stop comparing ourselves to others and saying, I... I might be as important as them. And instead, we stop comparing ourselves to them and compare ourselves to God. Why should Christians walk through life feeling a humble sense that we owe service to people rather than them owing it to us? The answer is the gospel. That Christ loved us and died for us and forgave us and accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made us heirs of the world When He owed us nothing. He treated us as worthy of His service when we were worthy of His condemnation. He took thought not only for His own interests, but for ours. He counted us greater than Himself. That is where our humility comes from. We should feel overwhelmed by God's grace. We should be stunned into lowliness. How does a person do this? Assess yourself in light of the Scripture and God's perfection. Remember the Gospel? What's it start with? God. And God is holy, holy, holy. 
And when we look at God and we assess ourselves in light of who God is, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I deserve nothing. There's nothing so foreign to a Christian that is consumed by the gospel than arrogance. If we get up every day and we go, God is holy, 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 and I am depraved and it is only because of Jesus that I am in relationship with God, we will, the arrogance will just fall away because we'll see our proper place in this universe. When we see ourselves as we actually are, our conceit and vainglory recede and we're able to see others as more significant than ourselves. The point is not what others are. That's that comparing ourselves to others thing. The point is not what others are. The point is what you count others to be. And the focus is not on any skill or any trait that may determine value. Well, how do you determine how valuable a person is? Nothing that they inherently have with themselves is what we look to to determine their value. The focus is, will you count them as worthy of your help and encouragement? Not are they worthy, but will you count them as worthy? Look, we are all made in the image of God. And we are all depraved and only by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and God's grace are we lifted into relationship with Him. We're all in the same boat. And so when we look at others, we don't go, Do I, are they worthy? Are they worthy of me serving and doing stuff? For? No. We look at them and I say, we count them worthy because I know I'm not worthy. Will you count others worthy to be looked at as more significant than yourselves? This is tough. Hey, remember God's work in our life. This feels good and it's great and we love that. Hey, have the same mind. Be unified. Set yourselves aside. It gets tough, but then lift others up. Lift others up. Verse 4, we've got to move along quickly now. Look out for others. Look out for others. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This gives some balance. It doesn't say ignore your own interests. Okay? Just reorder your interests. This turns its head on today's pop psychology that says we have to first love ourselves. Scripture's clear that we already love ourselves. We're born selfish and self-loving. It is Christ in us that allows us to stop loving ourselves at first and start loving others first. This is interesting. So what are your interests that you pay attention to? What are the things in your life that you pay attention to? Finances, health, family, kids, house, jobs, spiritual growth, emotional support. Hey, these are the things we pay attention to and hate and we take care of. Guess what? Pay attention to those in other people's lives and help take care of those as well. The word interest here in that phrase, look each of you onto his own interest, not only on his own interest, but also the interests of others. The word interest is kind of a filler word. There's really nothing there. It, it could literally be, let each of you look not only to his own, fill in the blank, but also to the of others. It's just the word the, essentially. To his own the, and look out for others the. 
Fill it in. It's all-encompassing. Whatever it is that's important, whatever it is that makes a difference, whatever it is that impacts you, don't just look out for your own, but watch out for others too. Take care of the people around you, church. Look around you. Get into their life. Oh, we don't like that. See, we're private. We, you know, we drive into the garage, shut the door, close the door. That's where we live. Living as a body of believers, we get into each other's lives. It's the way it works. Get into a grow group, guys. It's the best intrusion in your life you'll ever have. Because all the burdens that we bear on our own, we suddenly bear with others. And they bear with us. Because somebody else is looking out and cares about my interests. Not because I'm worthy, but because they love me. Two notes of application on this. Looking out for other interests before yours. Looking for the interests of others is the key to godly parenting. We will not effectively parent unless we stop looking out for our own interests and look out for the interests of our children. This is not child-centered parenting, because that's disastrous. This is gospel-centered parenting. What is the most important thing for your children? It is that they become more like Christ. And so we should make decisions in our parenting and in our family that are significant in terms of them becoming more like Christ and in loving the church and serving in the church and doing the mission that God has given to us. The gospel. It's gospel-centered parenting. Secondly, friendship flourishes in the flow of others-focused. There's a reason. For those of you, I keep talking about grow groups because this, this is where this really fleshes out. But if you guys in grow group, you know that, hey, where are, your, where are some of your best friends at grow group? Why? Because we're serving each other there and, and we're relating to one another this way and we're caring for one another and friendships flourish. Look out for others. Number six, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Notice this mind thing keeps getting re- re- repeated in this passage, I don't have time to spend much time to talk about it a lot, but hey guys, the way we think, it impacts what we feel, it impacts what we do, it impacts our, our attitudes, what you think and how you think and what you fill your mind with. It's huge. So verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ, guys. But notice, he doesn't say, Have this mind for you yourself individual. Yeah, we need to do that. But how does he phrase it? Have this mind among yourselves. It's plural. It's to the whole body. This, is a, this command is corporate. This mind described in verses 3 and 4 that we just talked about. And then the example provided in verses 5 through 8 of Jesus giving up everything and dying on the cross. This should be the way we think amongst ourselves. The way we think as a body of believers. It's how we interact relationally. It should all reflect this mind. This is radical humility and radical unity that's being commanded of us. It is the opposite of our natural tendencies. So how in the world do we do this? If all we do is just try harder, 
we're going to struggle mightily. Because he doesn't say that this is the mind you have, so just put it into practice. Hey, this is the attitudes you already have. Just put it into practice, guys. Just, just work harder at this. No, he, he knows. He knows. We're, we're fallen, natural people. Yeah, we're redeemed, but we still have that sinful nature. And it makes us really hard. And if we just try a little harder, we're going to struggle. Instead, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, how? In Christ Jesus. It's not yours in more effort. It's not yours in working harder. It's not yours in listening to more sermons. It's not yours. Those are all things we have to do. Do we need to work harder at it? Everybody shake your head yes. Do Do we need to listen to more sermons about it? Shake your head. Yeah. Effort. It takes effort. But if if we leave out Jesus, we'll never get there. Because it's yours in Christ Jesus. Hey, this mind, what I just described to you, that for me rocks my world of how in the world I'm going to think about others because I like to be selfish. If I'm going to do this, how do I do this? Where is it at? Where is this mind at I'm supposed to have? Todd, it's in Christ Jesus. You, you, you know your Savior. You know Jesus who in salvation you've been united with. You, you know the Holy Spirit that lives within you. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. The key is the gospel. What we cannot do for ourselves, Christ has already done perfectly. He's done it perfectly, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind, this way of thinking, this humility, this focus on others, it doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from Christ. It is the result of the gospel in our lives, the Spirit's ongoing work in our heart, and being united with Christ in salvation. We then pursue this. Motivated by what God has done for us, we pursue this together because it is worthy of the gospel. And then he says, I'm going to give you the ultimate example. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. How did he humble himself? What did he do? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. The ultimate example of this mind. The gospel is what we strive for. It's what we received. It's what we need in our life. And it's the mission that we're on. To make disciples. To share the gospel. To proclaim the gospel to everybody around the world. The gospel is what drives us. It's what's important. It's what's central to us. No, grow, show, and go. It's, 
It's a description of the gospel in action at LifeBridge. So, if it's so important, what do we do? We walk worthy of it. And living a life worthy of the gospel is described as being all about others. Being united together with the same mind, but it's the same mind that's all about looking at others and saying, you are more important than me. How can I serve you? We lower ourselves and we serve others and we love others and we share the gospel and that is what is worthy. And that, guys, when the persecutions come and the oppositions come and the suffering comes, because they, if they're not here, they're coming, it is that kind of a body of believers that exemplifies those kind of attitudes that will get us through those difficult times, that will provide what we need in the midst of suffering and difficulty. The example, ultimately, is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are blown away by Your grace. Just blown away. We read this passage and realize that Jesus, who is God, gave up everything. But didn't just give up everything. He then took on our sin and then He sacrificed in death. And God, we cannot even understand, we can't fathom the pain and the difficulty for Him, the suffering involved in that. God, is beyond us. But God, we are so thankful. We recognize that we are not worthy, but that You have reached down and given us the great gift of Jesus and reached down for us and given Your grace on our lives to allow us to come and be in relationship with You. God, as we now go upstairs and we worship and proclaim Your truth, just, just work in our hearts and our minds. We would be submitted to you and your word. In Jesus' name.